From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today... You know, they're really an incredible family because they brought so much grace to the office. President and Mrs. Biden will be in Atlanta at Glen Memorial Church today to attend a service remembering the life of Rosalind Carter. I'm Bill Nygut. President Carter, who's not left plane since going into home hospice some nine months ago, will also be attending the service for his wife of 77 years. I'm Tia Mitchell, live in Washington. State Senate GOP leaders have released a map that might give black voters more representation, but won't change the balance of power in the Senate. We'll talk about redistricting with former Georgia Congressman John Barrow. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Tia and Bill, I haven't seen you guys since the Thanksgiving break. Tia, I hope yours was at least a little bit relaxing. It was. I went to an amazing sold-out arena that was a gospel concert, (laughs) the Kirk Franklin reunion tour. And then I went home to Louisville and spent time with my family. And because it was a big week for me, I'm a Jaguars fan, as everyone knows, but my friend's son plays for the Indianapolis Colts, Amir Speed. So we went to the Colts game on Sunday and cheered Amir on from the stands. So I had an amazing week. How was his game? He did well. He's a rookie and he's mostly doing special teams, but he's getting out there. He was out there for several plays. And so that's just wonderful to see as he's kind of living out his NFL dreams. Cool. And his my friend, it, um, his mom was there. She rarely misses games. So it was a really cool experience. And Bill, you got a little relaxing time with family? Yeah, we did. You know, I spent three days uh, doing a new New York Times uh, turkey recipe. And our what was small, it called again? It, you spatchcock it. Spatch it means cock. you cut the uh, backbone off and flatten the whole bird. You do that with the chicken. You, and here's the point. Uh, it was virtually tasteless. <laughs> Ooh, wait a minute. What, what seasonings did was, you use, I, Bill? You, well, instead of talking about my tasteless Thanksgiving turkey, I want to give you all a recommendation. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Janice and I did on, the, on that uh, a break that we got, we went to see the movie... The Holdovers, hmm. um, about a prep school in New England uh, during Christmas break when the uh, dyspeptic teacher has to watch over four students who can't go home for the break. It is one of the most beautiful movies that we've seen in a very long time. I really... Dyspeptic teacher. I, I have to watch it now. I have to watch it. <laughs> well, I spent my Thanksgiving morning running the half marathon and, and you know, trudging through the end, but I didn't walk, so that was good. You are so impressive. When yeah, you right. So impressive. It, it is not... I am not a speed demon whatsoever, but I, but I finished. And then, instead of watching the Georgia... Georgia Tech a grudge match. I spent the weekend in Great Wolf Lodge, an indoor water park in Lagrange, Georgia. Oh, <laughs> nice! Yes, with my two, with my both my girls who both turned ten and thirteen over the weekend. Wow! Yeah, so it, it was it was a very different Thanksgiving, but it was great. This is politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.
Today, President Carter is set to travel from Plains to Atlanta to attend a memorial service for his beloved wife, Rosalind Carter, here in Atlanta. Former President Bill Clinton and several first ladies will join. We're going to get a live report from Sumter County in the next few minutes. But first, a major political story is unfolding at the state capitol as lawmakers begin releasing newly drawn district maps under an order from federal judge Steve Jones, who ruled that the current political boundaries illegally dilute black voting power. The state Senate maps were unveiled yesterday, and this week we'll also see state house and congressional maps. With us to discuss redistricting is former Democratic Congressman John Barrow. John, thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you. Thanks. Well, let's give listeners some backstory, since you know more about the endless battle over redistricting than perhaps anyone else in Georgia. You were once the last white Democrat from the Deep South in the U.S. House, and redrawn districts led you to move from Athens to Savannah to to Augusta during your five-term tenure. That is a lot of moving crates. I should have bought a Winnebago. I was the congressman from Winnebago County. <laughs> you were telling us you might be, you, you might be, actually, I think you are the most gerrymandered member of Congress in the history of the Republic. Well, in terms of where they took support away from and where it was left over and what I did in response to it, I think that's a fair, a fair statement. Yeah. So talk to us about what it's like to be redistricted, what it's like to go through that process where maps could come out, you know, doing this process at really at any moment and upend your life. Well, here's the thing I don't think a lot of folks appreciate. Maps, we talk about legislative races, uh, election districts that are parts of the whole, like the State House, the State Senate, and the U.S. Congress map for the state of Georgia. Maps are the tie that binds. It's what brings the representative and the people most intimately together. You can listen to all sources of information outside your district. You can bring all kinds of outside information, influences to bear. But in the final analysis, folks are going to vote on what you do or the people who live inside the district that you that you represent. And what I find most destructive in our politics generally by the churning of districts in order to produce predetermined electoral outcomes. And that's what you do with gerrymandering is you dictate the outcome. You may not decide who's going to win, but you're going to dictate what is going to win in a district when you draw these lines in today's um, reality. Uh, the most destructive thing about drawing districts with that in mind is, the, is, the, is that it, it destroys the bond between representative and people, which takes time to establish on a, on a you know, th- for the first time ever in your first election, but to, but to establish it over time through the course of listening to your representative, whether it's someone you voted for or not, you're going to listen to them with a little bit more interest, uh, even if you didn't vote for them. And the opportunity to, 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 ex- to listen and to hear from people other than the folks who voted for you and who might turn you out next time, uh, and the opportunity to, to speak back and to explain yourself to your voters is lost when you're constantly churning the districts, when you're constantly campaigning for the support of people that you've never campaigned before in the, in the past that don't know you from um, Adam's off ant. You know, it's, so I think the most destructive thing about this that hardly anybody talks about is the corrosive effect it has on the, on, on the people who get to do the choosing and the people who are chosen. Uh, neither under, is given the opportunity to, to get to know and understand and, and deal with the other as much as they should. Um, John, first of all, we should point out, as we always do in these conversations, Republicans now in the majority at the legislature, both in the House and the Senate. So they are obviously going to draw maps, and we'll talk more specifically about the new Senate map at some point, that favor their party, just as Democrats did when they were in charge. 
Um, but, but I want to talk to you about one aspect of this that really relates to what you just said, and that is drawing maps that keep communities of interest, that compact communities of interest together. And, and, and that, I think, has a lot to, to do with what you're talking about, how communities begin to establish a relationship with a member of the legislature or Congress. So, for instance, uh, the new Senate map splits the city of McDonough, uh, which is 70 percent black, uh, at least, maybe not in half, but it splits it up. What happens when you allow that sort of drawing to take place? Well, the voice of that community uh, is diluted to start with. That's the that's the first and uh, most important impact locally. Over in Athens, for example, my hometown, uh, there are uh, five or six representatives, and only uh, one of them uh, is is elected by a district where a, a Democrat even has a chance of getting elected and does in fact get elected. Uh, that hardly speaks for the community as a whole, and and, and ends up uh, diluting. Uh, the interests and the representation and the voice of the people in in the community when they're when they're split up, uh, when their when their community is turned into a pizza chart, uh, where the, the 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 core in the middle uh, and the most numerous part is divided into lots of little pieces that are attached to areas that have very little in common in terms of their politics or their needs. Uh, it, it doesn't serve it doesn't serve the people. Very well, John, well. and to follow up on that, and I know Tia wants to jump in too. If you're in the city of McDonough. You, across the city lines, are going to have some shared interests that you may want to advance. But when you split the district up, you dilute the ability of the citizens of that city to be able to make have their voice in change. Absolutely. I'll say one thing about the, uh, the gerrymander in 2001 that set the stage for my election in 2004. One thing that I think not many people noticed... Uh, and some folks criticized was that the two second greatest cities in Georgia, Augusta and Savannah, each had uh, under that district plan a Democratic congressman and a Republican congressman. Now, people who were on the losing end when they just when, when both those cities were represented by Republicans only may have thought there was something wrong with that. But I'll tell you one thing it did. It created a situation that hardly exists in many places where people like me and Jack Kingston, for example, would disagree over what's in the best interest of Medicare. He might want to turn it into a defined contribution plan, and I want to keep it as a defined benefits plan, and I think that's very important, big stuff. But a lot of folks in Savannah didn't know about that. But we did try to outdo each other in trying to support the Port of Savannah. I mean, on local issues that are genuinely local, uh, where folks in in San Francisco didn't have much in common with with us as much as we had in, the say, the Medicare debate. Uh, we would try and outdo each other in trying to bring home the bacon. It would create opportunities for us to work together, which did not exist in a, in a map where two great cities, which had large pockets of voters on both sides of the so-called political divide. We had two local congressmen um, representing uh, you know, different points of view on these big issues. We could find common cause on these purely local things. And I think that is a, a building block. It's an important contribution to bipartisanship. It's it, Certainly something that doesn't exist now. Uh, they kept that uh, that bifurcation of Augusta and Savannah in my first gerrymander, I think because Charlie Norwood and Jack Kingston didn't want to take on too many Democratic votes in order to do me in. But in that last gerrymander, uh, uh, in that last gerrymander, both Augusta and Savannah lost the, the opportunity to have a congressman on both sides of the aisle. And I think the politics locally and nationally suffered as a result of that. Yep. Yeah. 
So I do want to start talking specifically about this Senate map um, and our colleagues, Mark Nisi and Maya Prabhu, um, looked into the map that was released. Um, we've already noted that two Democrats, their districts would become um, much more black leading um, voters, much more black voters in their district. And as a result, two Republicans would um get their districts become much more conservative. But what's not being said is their districts become more conservative because black voters were taking out of their districts. I think it's kind of Mm -hmm. safe to say that. Mm -hmm. And I think we can't ignore um, the issue of packing, which, you know, that has come up in the past in redistricting that you can't put a bunch of black voters in one district and other to protect um another district from having too much influence of blacks, knowing that black voters vote Democratic. Um, What are your thoughts, um, Congressman, about the map specifically that was released on Monday? The two principal tools of gerrymandering are cracking and packing. In the case of cracking, you take communities of interest that uh, that find a, a, a common voice in in politics and you crack them you divide them into into multiple uh, groups and center where their influence won't be heard, where they'll not be majority makers. On the, on the other hand, packing is where you, uh, when you can't avoid having uh, a district because of the numbers of people and their compactness uh, represented somehow, you, you put as many of the other guys, uh, other teams of voters in one district as possible, so you dilute their, their influence that way. Uh, what I know, what I believe about the, the Senate map, which is the only one I think has been mm-hmm. disclosed yet, is uh, it really sticks – a thumb in the eye of the judge uh, in, in this respect. First off, I've actually read Judge Jones's order. I can't say that I can, you know, I read it as closely as All I did. When I was, yeah, I can't say that I read as closely as I did cases when I was in law school that I had to be <laughs> tested on, but I've actually read it and I can tell you that he has observed all of the rules, most of which I think don't really address the issue. Um, the, the compactness, the eyeball test, uh, the 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 um, communities of interest, the traditional district, not pairing. He 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 addressed. He plays by all the rules in deciding uh, that in the case of the state senate, there is an affected area of about ten senate districts where the growth in the population of the African American voter is such uh, that. Uh, failing to rep- recognize that in the maps that are drawn actually deprives them of an, of, an, of an opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice that is equal to or greater than what their predecessors had 10 years before. And so he, uh, it's very targeted, very careful, very limited. And the remedy that he orders that in this area, you know, judges have foundered by trying to say we need to hold, do the whole state. We need to do everything or we need to adopt a, a position of of partisan gerrymandering as opposed to racial gerrymandering. I mean, Judge Jones avoids all, doesn't do any of that. He says this is the area uh, that is affected by the growth and the lack of, represent, lack of representative growth in an area where the growth in this population uh, matters. And so he's carefully confined his remedy that you can create two new African-American uh, districts in this affected area of 10 counties. Well, what I understand the map to have done is they've gone to 15 counties they move many, many people around. But the net gain, and this is, this is critical, the net gain of voice for the, for the voters who are underrepresented in the current map is only like 3,000. Only 3,000 African-American voters 
now have in number now have the ability to a fair and equal opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice under the proposed map as compared to the existing map. Meanwhile, if you confine yourself to that area and don't go outside there, if they go from t- the, the new map goes from 10 counties that are that the judge ordered to do something about to 15 counties. The remedy includes areas where there was not a wrong. They're moving massive numbers of people around, but the net increase for this population of folks that were underrepresented in this affected area is like 3,000. It is possible, and I think the other side's going to be coming up with a map that says you can have 100,000 people who are effectively disenfranchised in the current maps who could be who could be represented, have a have, an op, have a fair and equal opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice under a, under an alternate plan. And so we compare 100,000 people who are left out in the cold mm-hmm. by the proposed map. Uh, only 3,000 people uh, get a voice that they're currently deprived of right now under the current map. That, to me, is wildly out of sync. They're, they're, they're basically ignoring what the judge said. Here is the problem. I'm playing by the rules by saying the solution has to be found in the area where the problem exists. We could, in theory, redo the whole state. We could, in theory, say that discrimination against uh, African Americans because they're Democrats is 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 something that affects people all over the state. I mean, you could do that. Judge Jones doesn't do that. He's very careful. He plays by all of the rules that have been laid down by this incredibly complicated litigation in this area that says you can gerrymander against somebody on the basis of his First Amendment rights to associate with the party of his choice, but you can't gerrymander somebody on the basis of his race. And we're, he's, he's sticking to the rules, but this this map does not do that. And we're expecting the Senate Democrats and House Democrats to come up with their own versions of their maps uh, later today or, or later this week. We still are waiting to see the House maps, but going back to the Senate maps and to Tia's point, Republican leaders Judge Jones set out this 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 broad ruling of didn't say whose district should be realigned, but just kind of gave um, the two majority new two new majority black districts should be drawn in the state Senate in Western Metro Atlanta. Right. Right. So Republican Senate leaders use this, as, as Tia mentioned, as a way to insulate and preserve two Metro Atlanta Republican incumbents whose districts were becoming more competitive, while also taking aim at two Democratic incumbents who are seen as potential 2026 candidates. Jason Estevez, Elena Parent, they're both rising stars in the Senate Democratic Caucus. Uh, Jason Estevez's district is on the West Side. He still lives, you know, they didn't draw him out of his district, but they made his district far different geographic footprint. And Elena Parent, her district on the East Side in DeKalb County she also wasn't drawn out of her district, but now stretches. For, it used to be kind of central to Cab, and now stretches from um, south central to Cab all the way down to North Clayton County. So it's a dramatically different footprint for her. So you've seen politicians kind of go after for political aims too. Republican state senate leaders go after potential threats to their power in 2026. The toolbox in state legislative races is also a whole lot more effective than it is in congressional races because. As a result of two, uh, uh, as a result of Georgia's residency requirement, which 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 has both a locale and a time feature to it, you must live in the area you are going to represent for a year beforehand. It gives them much more an opportunity to be ruthless in drawing state legislative maps because they, they can draw people into places where they can't move. I at least had the opportunity to run for the district that had elected me, even though they even when they changed it so much that my home county was no longer in the district. <laughs> the district was still there, but my home county was out. I had the option. Uh, running for the U.S. House of Representatives, which does not allow the states to make any such residency or other uh, restrictions on your ability to run and, and, and serve uh, that, that they don't have in the state 
in the state legislature. Uh, it's 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 a tool that's been used ruthlessly in the past. Tia. So I want to pick up on something you just said, Greg, and this is me making sure I understand the the judge's ruling said create two Senate districts in West Metro Atlanta, right? The affected area. That is correct. And then what this map that came out Monday, I think we need to just put a fine point on this. And you just said it, Greg, Atlanta parent is east of Atlanta. And then the other district, McDonough, is south of Atlanta. So where are the changes on the west side or how how can we interpret the map as addressing that the issue raised was on the west side when it seems like the changes are mostly affecting south and east metro Atlanta. Help As, me. Yeah, uh, Jason Estevez's district is on the west side. So that one at least, uh, you know, that that's a district he represents a sort of a portion of south south Cobb and and southwest okay. Atlanta. So that district is, but you're right, Tia. I mean, this this is why Democrats feel like they have a legal argument to challenge this um, th- this ruling, uh, th- th- this new redraw. And I think when we see the House maps later on Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever we see the House maps, there's going to be a lot more chaos in that. The, the Senate maps were seen as the more, the quote-unquote, easier redraw because you're only involving two um Include adding two new majority black districts. The House ones, we're talking about five more, including two in Metro Macon. Um, so let's pick up on on all of this, uh, John. Uh, you know, you you're a you're a lawyer. I think you got your law degree from Harvard, so you're, you've got pretty good credentials so here. Hold it against me. Are you <laughs> are you of the opinion based on? And we should also point out, of course, you're a Democrat, um, or or have been in the past. Are we? I wouldn't want to put it to a vote, as some folks. Okay, have. but <laughs> do you believe that the way the Senate major, GOP majority has drawn this map, it will not pass muster if it if it in fact is approved and goes back to Judge Jones? Do you believe Judge Jones will have good reason to reject the way it's been drawn, at least as of right now? Yes, for two reasons. First, the remedy that has been proposed extends into areas where the judge specifically found there was no violation. Secondly, the remedy does not give voice to the people who are the intended beneficiaries of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that's communities of, 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 of racial interest, or racial minorities, who for one reason or another or in one way or another have been systematically deprived of an equal and fair opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice. It might be, as in my case... Uh, a, a crossover candidate who was elected always in a primary that was dominated by African-American voters, but in a general election, it was dominated by white voters. Uh, that's an equal, that's an opportunity to elect the candidate of your choice. Uh, but in this case, uh, the remedy that was adopted by the Senate leadership uh, extended into areas and drew people around in and, out of the, in and out of the districts where they're currently represented, where there was no violation in order to be able to produce a net uh, uh number of Democrats and Republicans, which really shows that the only community of interest, the only community of interest that matters to map makers when it comes to gerrymandering is the partisan divide, the, 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 the community of Democratic voters and the community of Republican and, voters. And of course, this U.S. Supreme Court has said partisan gerrymandering is perfectly legal. 
Well, they haven't said it perfect. They, they said that the federal courts won't do anything about it. Okay. They, they've said that it's bad. Even Roberts and them and, and Kennedy, when they when they turned away from and, and basically said federal courts will no longer have a role to play in this after 25 or 30 years of fiddling around with the issue. Uh, they, they, they said it was bad. It's not good. They just say that courts aren't equipped to de- the federal courts aren't equipped to deal with the issue. But it is a it is a problem. And even folks who've, uh, uh, who've tolerated it have, have acknowledged that it is a problem. Thank you, Congressman Vera. We have to have you come back to dive deeper into redistricting. we got to take a quick break. When we return, we'll look at the remarkable group of political leaders and others who are gathering in Atlanta right now for a memorial service for Mrs. Carter later today. That includes Jimmy Carter, who's making his first trip out of plane since going into home hospice at the age of 99 this February. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Every morning, delivered to your email, you can get Georgia's must-read newsletter from the AJC Politics team. The new Politically Georgia morning newsletter is your daily jolt of news, insights, and analysis from Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, Adam Van Bremer, and me, Greg Bluestein, housed under our brand new brand, Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com newsletters. Thank you for being here as we look forward to 2024. This afternoon, former President Jimmy Carter is set to be at Glenn Memorial Church on Emory University's campus for the private memorial service honoring the life and legacy of his wife, Rosalind. President Dr. Biden, Vice President Harris and her husband, former President Bill Clinton, and Hillary Clinton, and former First Ladies Michelle Obama, Melania Trump, and Laura Bush are all expected to attend as well. Although, guys, I do want to point out something that Patricia Murphy, who is at the funeral right now, um, she pointed out on Twitter. And this is, I'm quoting her, although the famous faces on today's funeral for Rosalind Carter will be testament to her impact, I think the children lining highways to say goodbye might be the best expression of how much Rosalind Carter truly meant to Georgia. Bill, she included pictures of hundreds of school children and their parents. Uh, their parents weren't even alive when Rosalind Carter was first lady, let alone the kids, uh, but lining up to show their final respects to the first lady. Yeah, I mean, l- let's face it. Um, the Carters are such an important part of, as we know, of American history, but Georgia history uh, in, in particular. And so for young kids, as Patricia points out, to get a chance to watch the motorcade go by, to be thinking about the Carters' impact on the, the country, on the world— and to begin learning more about their history is just a wonderful thing. I think Patricia's exactly correct. Well, after the service, a motorcade will transport Mrs. Carter's remains back to Sumter County, her beloved home, where the AJC's Martha Dalton has been reporting on all this week's tributes to Rosalind Carter. Martha, thank you for joining us. It is great to have you back here on WABE, your professional home, before you joined the AJC. <laughs> Great. Thank you for having me, Greg. Hi, everybody. Hey, Martha. Hey, Martha. Well, so you're in Americas right now. Americas or Plains? Are you in Americas or Plains right now? I'm in Americas. Uh, I will be in Plains later today um, and tomorrow, obviously, for the funeral. Um, Of course, yesterday, 
um, the motorcade came through Marrakesh because uh, the former first lady's alma mater is Georgia Southwestern State University. Um, and they laid a wreath there. Um, and I was there to really get a sense of her impact there. I mean, I think what Patricia said is so important because I felt it on the college level there. I mean, the students who came out to see her, obviously, like you said, were not um, here when she was first lady. Um, but her impact on that university is clearly felt by the people there. Um, and, you know, I think what is important to understand for people in Atlanta is how tight these smaller communities are. You know, everybody knows everybody. So people knew the Carters, um, even though they are, you know, world leaders and kind of larger than life in some ways. Um, people really felt like they knew them. They felt like, you know, these are our neighbors, because if you walk around uh, downtown Plains, um, you know, it it takes just a few minutes to get from the high school to the Carter's house mm -hmm. to the church to, to the as, campaign you know, headquarters. Know, right. To former campaign headquarters everywhere. I mean, it's like walking a couple of blocks in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so so I think um, what's important to emphasize is just how um, tight the community is, how everyone feels like they know everybody. And the Carters were really part of that fabric. You know, you can't sort of separate them out. Um, so, you know, their their impact and their influence is so deeply felt on campus. Martha, so, you spoke to a professor who took his job just to study the Carter family. Yes, his name is Jason Berggren, and he came to Georgia Southwestern in 2009. And he told me the reason why he says that, you know, that he studies the Carters as a political scientist is because you can't study Jimmy Carter very long without running into Rosalind. And here's what he said about that. And in fact, I would say in 1980, she ran the campaign because he did the Rose Garden strategy. She did the Rosalind strategy. So she would go to Iowa. She would go to New Hampshire. She would go to Florida. I know we often focus on the humanitarian parts, but she was also a political actor. And she was a practitioner of our democracy. And democracy is about participating in our system, campaigning for the issues that you care about, campaigning for the candidates that you care about. In her case, that was her husband and his agenda. Martha, it's not just professors and senior staff that were moved by the memorials. Current students you talked to were just taking in Mrs. Carter's legacy. That's right. Um, you know, one of the groups that she founded on campus was the Young Democrats. And so I ran into the president of that group now, uh, his name is Frederick Wright, and he talked about what it means to be leading that group now that she founded uh, so many years ago in the 1940s. In this moment, it just solidifies her involvement on GSW campus, and not just the GSW campus, but for the whole community. The more that I continue to learn about the Carters, the more it's just like, uh-uh, they feel at home. They feel like, oh, they're right down the street. Like, they're, they're, they're close. They're homey. Hey, Martha, it's Bill. Um, one, Hi, of, Bill. one of the things that's fascinating to me um, about learning, which I did not know until this week when I started studying the different stops that were going to be on the motorcade route, I did not know that she was a founder of the Young Democrats at Georgia Southwestern University. And here's what I think is important about that. It shows us that from a very early age, 
this um, she was interested and excited by politics. And there's this, I think, more universal notion somehow that Rosalind Carter was a small-town girl in Plains, Georgia, who happened to meet Jimmy Carter, and because of his interest in politics, she went along for the ride. That's not the case at all. No, it isn't. It isn't. You're exactly right, Bill. And that's what um, you know. this professor was saying yesterday, um, who has studied the Carters, not not Jimmy Carter, but the Carters, because she was right there from the beginning. And I have a quick pop quiz uh, for you political reporters. Um, it'll probably be pretty easy. But uh, what was Jimmy Carter's first political position? Board of Education? I think Board of Education. Some yes. Right? yes. Okay. Yes. Ding, it ding, was ding, 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 ding. Board of Education. And and the reason why I said political position as opposed to elected position is because uh, they were board members were appointed in those days. Um, but what this professor pointed out is that Rosalind was there even then, you know, in the early 60s when he was um, a school board member. She was there right beside him trying to help sort of figure out policy. Um, so I think, you know, it goes back that far. Um, she was very interested in the political landscape and she has she has said that before that she really liked the politics he didn't like it as much hmm. last week their grandson jason carter on politically georgia called rosalind carter the true political genius of the family Tia? yeah i wanted to talk more about of course we talk a lot about the politics but martha i want to get more of your insight about just kind of the everyday neighbor aspect of the carters in that pocket of Georgia, because it seems like everyone just has a story about Jimmy and Rosalind and how that really they everyone feels like they know them or knows, you know, one or two degrees of separation. What have you found in your reporting? Yeah, I would say not even not even a degree, really, because, you know, they are um, neighbors to everybody. And to put it in some context, you know, Plains is less than 700 people. They, you know, I, I Metro Atlanta, uh, well, Atlanta itself is about half a million, and then the metro area, probably about 6 million. I know it's hard to, it's kind of hard to scale down that far, you know, if you haven't sort of seen it. And it was hard for me before yesterday, but walking around um, Plains, um, which doesn't take very long, you know, everybody knows them. They, they um, will come into local establishments to eat lunch once a week, you know, and um, they will come into local businesses. Um, they have a real involvement in the community. And I think it's also um, a really, it's an interesting sort of case study because there probably aren't a lot of first families who do that, even if they go back to their hometowns after they leave the White House. Um, there's probably just not the same sense of community. You know, these are our neighbors, you know, these are um, uh, people who are really, really involved in their community. Um, you know, the students at Georgia Southwestern said it wasn't unusual for Rosalind Carter to come to campus, you know, and speak. It wasn't unusual for them to um, to bring resources or attention um, to the campus in some way. And I spoke to the, the college president even yesterday who said, you know, they really kind of helped uh, put that institution, which used to be a two-year institution, now it's four years, but they really kind of helped it grow and put it on the map. Its enrollment grew like 11% last mm. year. Um, you know, so it, it it really, their influence is 
is enormous. But at the same time, there's this kind of contrast in that everybody felt just like they were their neighbors. They knew them. Um, you know, it's it's one of those um, things that I think is hard to understand coming from Atlanta or coming from a bigger metropolitan area because um, there is just a different feel, you know, to to um, Sumter County and just their involvement here. People obviously realize they're, they're kind of star power, if you will, but at the same time, they're just Jimmy and Rosalind. Yeah, you know, it's, it is, they're of course President Miss Carter, but you're right. There's so many people in that town of 500 or so people. They're Mr. Jimmy and Miss Rosalind. And Martha, I'm curious, was that, is this your first time to, to Plains? It is, yes. And I, I grew up in Georgia, but it's my first time here. So what was your first, as you walked around in the, you know, down, down, quote unquote, downtown Plains is basically five storefronts. The, the, <laughs> the old campaign office is on the railroad track right around the corner. The high school's there. It's now a national park. The old right. farm that Jimmy Carter grew up in archery um, on the quote unquote outskirts of town is maybe three minutes of a drive, uh, you know, east. So what was it like for you, your first time to Plains to really kind of feel the, um, the atmosphere uh, around the Carters? Well, honestly, I felt kind of silly because when I walked around asking the people from the National Park Service, um, you know, how how far is it to um, get to the Carter's house? He, they literally pointed <laughs> and said, well, it's about 500 feet that way, you know. And, I, and so when I realized, you know, how easy it was to get from place to place, you know, I thought, well, I'll figure out if they're blocking off the roads for, um, you know, the funeral, which will be tomorrow at Maranatha, their church, mm -hmm. I, you know, and I was asking people, are they going to block the roads off and where will it start? And they, again, literally pointed and said, well, you can just walk down and see the church. And, and sure enough, the roads were not blocked off. So it was, um, it was one of those situations where I've, you know, obviously heard about planes growing up and the Carters being from here, but um, had no idea of the sort of tightness of the community and just um, the, the actual size of it. You know, it it, it was um, it at the same time, you know, it is very impressive because people are so well informed, not just about the Carters and their impact, but just um, they just have this kind of world awareness in a way because they have so many people coming through as tourists um, that they're very they're very used to kind of being a tourist destination. So I would love for us all to talk just for a moment or two about this remarkable service at Glen Memorial Church this afternoon. Um, the fact that President Biden and, and uh, Dr. Biden are coming is wonderful in and of itself for the Carter family. But we should remember that Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, was the first elected official outside of the state of Georgia to endorse Jimmy Carter early on in his run for the White House in 1976. Biden actually went to Wisconsin to appear with uh, Carter uh, to say he supported him. And, and Biden has reflected on that on uh, several occasions, saying people thought I was crazy in <laughs> Washington. And he said, no, no, I think this man is uh, the real deal. And then, of course, the other thing we should remember is that uh, one of his first visits after um, assuming the presidency was the Bidens came to Plains yep. to visit with Jimmy and <laughs> Rosalind Carter. So he's had an enormous uh, relationship, an important relationship. But the other quick thing is the fact that 
all of these people, Laura Bush, Michelle Obama, Melania Trump, this is a tribute to the Carters, but it also in some way says something about, I wonder if the people, Greg, in that church think to themselves, there was a time when politics were more civilized, when people of grace um, who uh, wanted to work for the betterment of the country uh, really were trying to do that. And the Carters reflect that so beautifully for these people of different parties coming together today. Yeah, and I feel like just the fact that a town like Plains can grow a future first lady and a future president, you know, a town of such humble origins, um, whereas Martha mentioned, you know, people are very connected to the Carters. There is a political memorabilia shop in the middle of, of, of downtown that is amazing. It has Billy Billy Carter beer. A, it is it is a fantastic kind of trip through town memory lane, as as are so many of the other exhibits. The the boyhood home of Jimmy Carter in archery is a must see because you you see you know how close the Jimmy Carter's childhood home was to the railroad tracks, and there when he'd have sleepover guests come over. And to friends come over and spend the night, you know, they would be woken up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. in the morning by the sound of a train that felt like it was about to run over the house. And Jimmy <laughs> Carter and his family were just used to it because they're, but it just goes to show you, uh, you know, the really the American ideals. Uh, Tia? Yeah. And I, speaking of archery, because as we've talked about on this show, I made my pilgrimage to Plains in 2021. And what I noted, and it's been talked about how Jimmy Carter's father moved his farm to what was essentially the black side of town. Mm -hmm. Archery was the black neighborhood on the other side of the railroad tracks. And that means Jimmy Carter's childhood friends were the black children who either lived in the area or their parents helped um, Mr. Carter tend to that peanut farm. And we know he was partially raised by the black couple that lived on the property that were the farmhand and his wife. Their house is also preserved still on that property. So I was just struck by the fortitude of Jimmy Carter's father to say he was going to raise his white family among all these black people and how that really shaped Jimmy Carter and shaped his politics in a way that has resonated again throughout his presidency and beyond. Martha. Right. Well, I, I think that also carried over to, um, you know, his work on the school board, trying to, um, you know, consolidate schools, things like that. Um, you know, and like you said, Tia, then further in his political life, you know, that sort of shaped his his focus, his political focus. And I think for Mrs. Carter, too, for Rosalind Carter, too, you know, she was right there um, sort of helping him decide what the what policies they should focus on. I mean, she was really kind of an equal partner in that. Well, Martha, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Politically Georgia. I know you'll be down there, of course, Wednesday, covering the invitation-only funeral at Maranatha Baptist Church, which is, as you mentioned, just a stone's throw from downtown Plains. It's great to have you back. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song. 
the celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics quite like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter every day. And now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. All one word, all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. Tia, you broke a big story right before the Thanksgiving break. Congressman Buddy Carter of Pooler is the latest member of Georgia's congressional delegation and probably the first high-profile, what we're calling mainstream Republicans in the state, to endorse former President Donald Trump's comeback presidential bid. But I want to be clear, when we're talking about mainstream, we're not saying Buddy Carter is a moderate, right? That's right. And I, listen, we got emails, we got (laughs) tweets. People are like, how dare you say that he represents the Republican Party? Well, gosh, guys, he does. And so, first of all, we did not call him a moderate. I don't know why some people thought that's what we meant by mainstream, but we choose our words carefully here on the AJC (laughs) politics team. And so what we mean by mainstream is that he is the norm. He is what most Republicans are. And in today, we're talking about today, 2023, the Republican Party is conservative. Um, the Republican Party, people are like, well, he um, voted not to certify the electoral votes. Yeah, with two thirds of the Republicans in the House. Mm-hmm. Mainstream is what we're talking about. And so... Um, I think what people are are reacting to when they read the article where, again, the, the news was that Buddy Carter endorsed Trump. But what I think stuck with people is we said he's one of the first mainstream Republicans to do so. Um, contrasted with what we called hardline conservatives. Now, what do we mean by hardline? Those are the far right, the ultra conservative conservatives, the ones that just not just kind of dealing with um, some aspects of elect of um, rejecting electoral votes, but the ones who um, were involved in trying to overturn mm-hmm. the election, directly involved, directly peddling misinformation and disinformation. Um, so, or for example, not just being um, kind of more conservative in values, but actively trying to roll back abortion rights, actively trying to roll back protection for LGBTQ, not just supporting it, but actively involved in these issues. Um, and it, and I get it that it's kind of not an exact science, but what we're trying to say is that there are levels to the conservatism we're seeing in the current Republican Party. And Buddy Carter is far from the most extreme conservatives. And um, and that's what makes him mainstream. Yeah, Tia, I think you put it right. The, the, there's levels to this. And what we're going to see over the next few months, I think we're going to see more Georgia Republicans start to endorse Donald Trump. 
We've even talked to Governor Brian Kemp, who has said that if Donald Trump is the nominee, he is going to back him, right? And it's even, and I say even Brian Kemp because, of course, Donald Trump uh, tried to oust Brian Kemp from office and blamed him for his 2020 defeat and so on and so forth. Uh, but, yeah, this is notable, uh, Buddy Carter's position, because up until now, only the far-right members of the Georgia delegation had endorsed Donald Trump. We had Marjorie Taylor Greene. We had Andrew Clyde. We've had Burt Jones. I wouldn't know if he's far right, but but certainly he was Donald Trump's endorsed candidate for lieutenant governor, endorsed. But very few other Republicans, most other Republicans in Georgia have stayed on the sidelines. And that's starting to change. Right. And also Mike Collins, who's still mm-hmm. pretty, pretty conservative. Um, and I think Mark, Mike Collins really leaned into the hard right as he had that competitive primary um, against Trump endorsed Vernon Jones. Um, and I would I would probably argue Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, as one of the alternate electors, kind of gets put into that far right pot because of that those activities. But again, it is it's not an exact science. Yeah. I don't think any of them necessarily consider themselves far right high hardliners but we have to find a way to distinguish again because the republican party in general is becoming more conservative um i do think most of what we consider the mainstream republicans um are staying out of the primary they've all said they'll endorse whoever wins the primary including donald trump that's what we've heard from people like governor kemp People like Representative Austin Scott, they, you know, they'll endorse Kemp. They'll, I'm sorry, they'll endorse Trump if he's the nominee or Kemp if he's the nominee. Um, <laughs> but they're not willing to choose Trump now while there's still competition going mm-hmm. on from others. And again, that's what makes it a little bit surprising that Buddy Carter, who let's also explain why we don't consider Carter a hardliner. Carter has supported some of the Biden initiatives. He has showed up with Biden officials for public events to tout some of the investments the White House has made in his district. He's supported earmarks, um, which are ways to bring funding home to your district. That's something the hardliners have not done. He supported things like um continuing resolutions to avoid a shutdown, raising the debt limit to avoid a default. These are the types of votes that separates the mainstream from the hardliners. Um, but on on the primary, he's decided to go all in with Trump. And Tia, he's not going to be the last. Uh, you know, the a, a lot of Republicans I've talked to privately say, hey, look, the writing's on the wall. In polls that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution published not long ago, it showed that among likely Republican voters, uh, primary voters. Donald Trump is at 50% plus, 57%. Most national and early state polls also show him with a big lead. And so I think you're going to start seeing the campaign roll out more endorsements from who we typically see as more mainstream, not hardline Republicans in the in the so-called MAGA wing of the party, because that's all expected. But I think we're going to start to see more Republicans. And then it'll be really interesting to see how folks like Governor Camp, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, um, Attorney General Chris Carr, the Republicans on the other side of Donald Trump's wrath last year, how they play it. Because uh, I, Kemp plans to endorse someone. And he, I think he's going to wait until right before the primary in Georgia, which is March 12th, or at least until a, a closer to the election uh, time when it's maximum impact to endorse. But we'll, we'll, we'll see how he plays it. 
Yeah. And to your point, because the timing, you know, are they going to endorse now when there's still a crowded field? Are they going to wait until after Iowa or New Hampshire or the South Carolina primary? But I also want to mention that today, Americans for Prosperity, which is the Koch brothers, their political organization endorsed Nikki Haley which I think is pretty big because they're the tea, the roots of the Tea Party. Um, again, the Tea Party as we knew it back in 2008, which is... Mm-hmm. But the fact that they went with Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis is already piping mad. He's put out a press release saying basically an endorsement for Nikki Haley is to help put Trump back in office. Um, but the, the Koch brothers and all their money is now behind Nikki Haley. Yeah, it was a scathing response from the Santa's <laughs> campaign, uh, Bill. And I know you 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 welcomed Eric Tannenblatt, a top Nikki yeah. Haley uh, ally from Georgia, on the show yesterday. And he didn't really give too many hints, but he's you know he's yeah, something. Big you is know, coming. we we asked him. We said we we know some big donors are heading your way, right, Eric? Because he has been running the fundraising operation mm-hmm. for Nikki Haley. He's an Atlanta-based, of course. Um, uh, um, uh, political uh, operative for mm-hmm. Republicans for years. But um, I, I sent him a text. He sent me a link to the New York Times article about the Koch brothers, and I sent him back a note saying, yeah, I imagine you could have told us this and given us a scoop yesterday, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> and he chose not to respond to that text. But it, it, Eric, yesterday, as you know, says he really believes there is a path for Nikki Haley to win this nomination, and he sees it. Uh, starting with her uh, getting a ticket out of Iowa and then doing well in New Hampshire, especially, and then moving down to South Carolina, her home state. And right now, the game is really Iowa. You know, Chris Christie's camped out in New Hampshire, and he's betting it all on New Hampshire. But the other candidates, DeSantis this week wrapped up a 99-county tour of Iowa. Um, Nikki Haley's been spending a tremendous amount of time in Iowa. So a lot of the focus is Iowa, 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 ahead of that January 15th primary. Yeah. Caucus, not primary, caucus. Yes, yeah. caucus. And caucus. that's because DeSantis, I don't know, especially because Nikki Haley has been surging so much, DeSantis needs a win in Iowa. I think he needs a win. I don't, maybe second place might be good enough, but DeSantis really needs a win in Iowa in order to stay alive, I think. If if DeSantis does not, look, I mean, there's no reason to doubt that Trump should win Iowa based on polling in the state, Des Moines Register polling. But if for some reason DeSantis falls to third place behind Nikki Haley, Greg, I don't know what that means as his campaign moves to New Hampshire because he spent no time there. He's completely all in on Iowa. Right yeah, it now. might mean his campaign is DOA and we yeah. know how labor intensive these caucuses are. It is not just as easy as just showing up and airing ads and going and you know, urging people to the ballot box. It is a labor intensive process. And right now we're seeing the rival campaigns really put out their numbers. Trump has thousands of, of folks signed up to caucus. Uh, DeSantis says he does too. Nikki Haley doesn't seem like she has quite the same operation in Iowa, but we'll see. Uh, it's still a couple months out. You know, Greg, there's nothing like staking out a caucus site in, in part of Iowa when it's 12 degrees outside. Oh. <laughs> You've been there. I've been there a couple years ago i was with then atlanta mayor keisha lance bottoms yeah. out in uh in eastern iowa yeah. i don't know well that is all the time we have for today's show on politically georgia a reminder if you have a question you'd like to ask our show you can now call the politically georgia call-in hotline anytime 
leave a question, and we'll answer it on Friday's show. Producer Shaney B. and his legion of interns are standing by. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.